Some news from the world's biggest island. Scientists in Greenland have made a big discovery, the oldest DNA fragments ever found, and they were trapped in permafrost. These fragments contain samples from various plants and animal life, some long extinct. And it's from a time when Greenland was pretty balmy. A big departure from the icy country we know today. This DNA is a big deal, a full one million years older than the previous record. So why are scientists so excited about this find? Joining me to talk about this and other science news of the week is someone who knows, Umer Irfan, science writer at Vox, based in Washington. Welcome to Science Friday. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Ira. Uh, nice to have you. Okay, Umer, just how old are we talking about for this oldest DNA? Well, we're talking two million years old. And as you noted, this is almost twice as old as our previous record for genetic fossils that we found. And this was exciting, as you noted, for a couple of reasons. One, it's sort of a validation of this technique. Rather than, you know, looking at a specific fossil or some piece of resin or something like that, what they did was they actually collected a general sample from the sediment in, in the permafrost. And so this is sort of a broad spectrum genetic time capsule that they were able to use. And they, from there, they were able to decode a lot of fragments of different organisms that were around at the time. You know, DNA is actually a fairly fragile molecule. Right. You know, your body has to use a lot of different mechanisms and enzymes to keep it up to date. So it breaks down very quickly. And so they were surprised to find anything usable at all. And then from there, they were able to reconstruct basically a snapshot of what Greenland was like two million years ago. Well, tell us, tell us, what did they reconstruct? What they found was that there were a lot of plants and animals there living in Greenland that aren't there now, that basically was a lot more lush, a lot more forest, and also all these other kinds of land animals, including one of the most surprising things was they found um, evidence of mastodons. And previously, scientists had, didn't even know that mastodons could live that far north. And so it was it was a kind of a, a really surprising thing to just see how diverse and robust this ecosystem was. And as you noted, complete contrast to where it yeah. was today. And so it shows that there Greenland actually underwent a very stark change from the kind of ecosystem it was in two million years ago to where it is now. Could this tell us anything about DNA evolution? Yeah, absolutely. It shows kind of how organisms adapt over time. You know, because we were talking about a very different environmental landscape, we can see these are the kinds of organisms that thrived under these circumstances. And we also have sort of, uh, we can compare it to how we've seen the geology and, and the climatology of the region change over time as well. And so we have sort of this genetic snapshot as well as this geological snapshots that we can compare and see how life evolved or failed to evolve or adapt to some of the changes in the environment. And so we've seen rapid climate climate changes in the past before, and that could potentially give us some insight as to what we can expect into the future. That's really interesting. Speaking speaking of old things, the world's oldest animal, I understand, just celebrated his 190th birthday. I wonder if there was cake. I'm talking about a tortoise named Jonathan. Tell us about that, please. Yes, Jonathan, the 440-pound tortoise, he lives in an island in the South Atlantic called St. Helena, and uh, he was born, as far as we can tell, or as uh, scientists have just kind of established, December 4th, 1832. And so that would be around the time when Abraham Lincoln was making his first run for public office. Wow. And so he's been around for a lot. In fact, uh, he's actually originally from the Seychelles, and he was brought to St. Helena as a gift for the governor of the island. And he was already 50 years old at that point. And so uh, he's been through a lot. Well, American, you tell us how, how, how Jonathan celebrated his birthday. 
Well, he celebrated with a three-day party. He <laughs> ate a cake made with salad from tomatoes and bananas, some of his favorite uh, food. And he was joined by his companions, David, Emma, and Fred, who are also tortoises that uh, he has also been known to occasionally mate with. Hey, so he must be a lot older than the other tortoises then. Yeah, he is. You know, as far as we know, the lar- uh, the oldest living land um, animal. There might be older creatures that live in the sea, but a scientists are, of course, very interested in longevity and some of the right. secrets that he may offer. I mean, age has sort of caught up with him. He can't see anymore. He can't smell. But uh, his keepers say that he can hear and that he likes people being around. Mm, that's that's really cool. Happy birthday, Jonathan, from all of us at Science Friday. Uh, let, yeah. let's, let's move on to our next story, a little more serious. It's world leaders are in Montreal now talking about saving biodiversity. This, this meeting has been going on now. It's what? It's supposed to last two weeks. What are they talking about? Right. This meeting just kicked off this week. And if it sounds familiar, it's kind of modeled on the same climate meeting that we just saw recently wrap in Egypt. But this one is focused on biodiversity. It's part of a group called the Convention on Biological Diversity. Just about every country in the world is party to it, except notably the Vatican and the U.S. The U.S. is not officially a party to the accord, but they are sending a delegation to Montreal. And one of the key things on the agenda is actually coming up with a major global treaty that will set definite benchmarks for preserving life and restoring ecosystems around the world. So there are goals then that they have set. That's the tricky thing. They want to set about two dozen different benchmarks. And once those are set, they want to be able to hold countries accountable for them. So things like preserving forests, wetlands, and coastal areas and preventing them from being exploited, but also restoring them as well after they've been degraded, mined, or used for farming and then neglected. And, you know, this is going to require a fair amount of investment. And that is also going to be another key thing that, you know, many of the most pristine parts of nature in the world right now are in developing countries. And they want want to be compensated from other wealthier countries to help preserve these uh, ecosystems and these resources. But uh, but we didn't get much participation from world leaders. Well, Trudeau was the only one there, right? Yeah, that's right. It's a much lower key. Um, activists have been pushing for world leaders to attend like they did at the big climate meeting as well. But there's a lot else going on. And so the World Cup is going on right now. Mm. A lot of people's attentions are focused elsewhere. But activists and a lot of scientists say that this is just as important as like the climate treaty because you know life on earth is how we survive we need plants we need animals to keep life as we know it and our standards of living up and so this is still something that is very high stakes and in a couple weeks we'll know whether or not they came up with an agreement okay Romero we'll check in in about two weeks Uh, let's shift gears a whole lot and uh, talk about something some people might think is gross but it's actually really cool and we've talked about it on Science Friday a lot fecal transplants the FDA just approved the first fecal transplant therapy. Let's start with the basics. What is fecal transplant therapy? It's pretty much what it sounds like. It's a basically where you take feces, poop from a donor that's otherwise healthy, and you isolate the bacteria that we think is healthy, and then you administer it to somebody who may be struggling with some sort of illness. In this case, what we're talking about is a therapy called Rebiota. It's developed by a Swiss company called Faring Pharmaceuticals, and it's used to treat Clostridium difficile, or C. diff, which is a Mm. 
superbug. It uh, causes life-threatening diarrhea and most concerningly tends to affect healthcare settings. So people who are already hospitalized and who are already actually taking antibiotics tend to be vulnerable to this uh, infection. And it kills about 30,000 people per year. And, you know, in recent years, scientists have realized that in addition to tools like antibiotics, it turns out the microbiome, which is the suite of microorganisms that live inside us and on us, play right. a really important role in protecting us. And it turns out that C. difficile takes advantage of people whose microbiomes are depleted. And the thinking here is, if you can restore it, the good bugs can get rid of the bad bugs. And how, did, does, how do you get the therapy here? How is it transferred to you? Oh, okay, we're gonna get into some more goofy details here. Uh, so yes, this is actually administered as an enema. So you use the back door entrance into the digestive system. And uh, hopefully it's usually a one and done type deal. And so once mm. the good bacteria take root, that'll help drive out the infection and it can prevent the uh, antibiotic resistant right. bacteria from taking root. But there are also some other companies that are working on orally administered versions of this, encapsulated in a pill so you don't have to actually taste it. But right. uh, that will hopefully be a more simple and straightforward way to administer the same therapy. And the therapy is available when? Are some people already getting this? <clears throat> Actually, yes. You know, doctors have actually been using this for a while. So the FDA approval here is a sort of a regulatory signal. What it means is that more doctors and hospitals will be willing to prescribe it. And crucially, it means that more insurance companies will be willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And that means more people will have access to this. Yeah. Let's switch gears to a story about another type of therapy. I'm talking about monoclonal antibodies. They, they seem to be kaput for COVID. Why is that? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, the FDA revoked its authorization for this monoclonal antibody called Bebtelovab. I'm sorry, I'm not saying that correctly, but basically it's a version of a protein that your immune system uses to target COVID-19. But the problem is COVID-19 continues to change. And we've right. seen with the recent variants and the subvariants that it keeps evolving to evade our immunity. And with highly targeted therapies like monoclonal antibodies, those are especially vulnerable. So we're sort of on this treadmill where the virus evolves, we come up with a new therapy, and then we try, and then the virus evolves again. Uh, the, fortunately, we have antiviral drugs that we're using to treat COVID-19. Those seem to still be holding up. The monoclonals are sort of a second line of defense for people for whom mm -hmm. don't get the antivirals in time or who still end up in the hospital or have weakened immune systems. But, you know, we have this multi-layered strategy with COVID and losing any layer can be troubling, especially as we're heading into another winter. And we're also having a rise in other infections like RSV and influenza. All right. Well, quickly, let's finish things off with one last story about bad science and a nonprofit that wants to fight against it. Yeah, this group is called Clearer Thinking, and my colleague Seagull Samuel recently interviewed the founder, Spencer Greenberg, and he launched this thing called the Transparent Replications Project. You know, we've heard a lot of chatter about the replication crisis in science, particularly right. in social science and in psychology. Classic studies have failed to be reproduced. And so what this group wants to do is to reproduce psychological studies that are published in prestigious journals like Science and Nature. And the idea is, one, to validate the results, to see that, you know, if these things actually hold up. But the other thing is they want to actually change the incentives for scientists. You know, getting your paper published in a big name journal, it's a really important feather in your cap. It's a really good star on your resume. But why knowing that your study is going to be checked and double checked might give scientists some pause about publishing the first positive result and force them to go back and actually validate and replicate it themselves first. And that way, over time, we'll have better results getting published mm. overall. Hello, Mary. Always great stuff. Thank you for joining us today. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Umair Irfan, science writer with Vox based in Washington.